and welcome to the Emotion Lab. We're taking a deep dive into what makes the combination of immersive environments and emotion AI so exciting through interviews with experts across the fields of academia, healthcare, and technology. And I'm your host, Graham Cox. Hello, this week I am delighted to be joined by Iphigenia Mavridou, Iffy, as she's universally known. Hello, Iffy. Hello. Hi, and also by James. Hey, how you doing, Graham? Fantastic. Great to have you back on, James. Um, so, uh, Ify, you are MTech's lead affect scientist. Could you just start by telling us what that means and just briefly how you ended up uh, in this role? Sure. So I come from a fine arts, actually, background. I did my first degree in fine arts at the University of uh, Aristotle in Greece. And then I started investigating how we can incorporate virtual reality and other uh, interactive methods into artistic interaction. And then soon I started being uh, very intrigued by physiological sensors and biometric measures. Um, so I applied for a PhD position at Bournemouth University and I actually got this MD um, uh, sort of placement which is a, um, a doctoral uh, position at the University of Bournemouth in combination with the University of Bath via the Centre of Digital Entertainment and in this NST world, uh, the students have to have a sort of long-term placement at the company and I was very fortunate to actually find Emtech. Um, what I did three and a half years of placement with. And here I am today as an effect scientist where I'm focused on detecting effect, which is uh, another word for emotional states via biometric measurements and physiological sensors. And we do that uh, using a technology that we have uh, developed for, MTEC has uh, developed obviously uh, for a long time now uh, using virtual reality settings. Fascinating to have that mix of arts, science, creativity, programming, um, hardcore science and research in your in your background. It's a really interesting mix to take you into the world of understanding and trying to decode uh, human emotion and its uh, and its visible symptoms. So, um, as part of your um, your PhD that you have been working on over the last few years. Um, you led um, a data collection and experiment at, that was hosted at the London Science Museum last year. I'd love to hear more about that. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the biggest studies we've ever done. Um, so... Uh, the, so the Science Museum opens a call every year uh, for researchers to apply for a residency for approximately six weeks or so. And there is a gallery within the museum that's called Who Am I? And every year, uh, the finalists of the, of the competition can actually run a study, a full large study within the museum, which means that um, it, it allows researchers to have a closer interaction with a wider variety of highly motivated individuals as uh, participants. And um, it, something that would be otherwise impossible to do, it would be very difficult to recruit that fascinated different ranges of individuals who are so highly motivated. Um, as you know, the majority of studies, um, especially in, in psychology, are participants who are recruited from um, predominantly student uh, populations, if I can say. And that obviously represents a very small portion of the, of the population. 
So, um, so we applied, obviously, for a virtual reality study at the Science Museum, um, which had two different modes, an active and a passive mode. We set up four different uh, stations within that gallery, and we invited the participants to come and have a look, understand what virtual reality is, and uh, obviously run a data collection with us. Um, Within that, we had uh, an, an active scenario um, in which uh, participants would uh, wear um, a commercial virtual reality headset, the Vive, uh, also uh, with the MTech headset. And then they would uh, explore three different environments in which we would have um, uh, different um, stimuli embedded within those. Uh, some of those were objects, you know, um, included uh, as props within the environment, but we also had interactive events, sounds, audio happening at the same time. So participants would actually be immersed in a virtual environment that they could actually walk into um, with the use of external sensors. And they could just walk around, explore the environment and see what's happening when they interact with specific objects. Um, the three different scenarios we had uh, were one was neutral, in which was um, a complete replica of uh, of an office room we had back at the Science Museum, uh, sorry, at the Sussex Innovation Centre. And uh, the other two was a positive and a negative scenario. And um, obviously, there were different objects within those. In the positive scenario, for example, we would have um, a robot on the desk who would um, dance with you when you looked at it or make funny noises. We had butterflies entering the rooms, uh, funny pictures uh, on the wall. Um, and in the negative, obviously, we had very negative um, stimuli in there. We had some rats, some spiders, and all of them happened asynchronously and depending on your interaction with them. Uh, so it was a very, uh, if I may say, naturalistic way of um, experiencing a virtual uh, room as you would do in a natural room, in a, in a, in a, in a physical room. Fascinating. So you, you talk there about the three different experiments being neutral, positive and negative. Now, now that may not be uh, terms for um, affect, uh, emotional display that uh, the people are used to hearing. What, 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 can, you, can you give us some context about how positive, neutral and negative tells you about emotional state and what, um, what, you know, what the, uh, the scale, the measure is that you're using there? Yes, of course. So in emotion research, we have the term I used earlier called affect. Um, and the affect can be represented in two dimensions, really. Um, uh, we have the dimension of valence, which is basically the polarity of the emotional state. Let's say um, it can range from uh, negative to neutral and then to positive. The other dimension is called arousal or, or, or physiological arousal, really, is the intensity of that emotion. Um, and it can range from very low to, let's say, sleepy, um, all the way to alert, very excited. So every emotional state that a person might feel can be illustrated within this two-dimensional space. Um, and therefore, what we wanted to do is create uh, three different scenarios, which are very controlled in their nature. We wanted to induce specific emotional state, states and specific ranges of uh, physiological arousal states within those. So we wanted, um, in the positive scenario, we wanted to induce positive valence, obviously, and different ranges of uh, physiological arousal. And the same thing uh, for the negative. 
Interesting. And how, why does, in what way does the dimensional model that you're talking about, valence and arousal, what, how, what benefits does that give, uh, give you as a researcher over the more traditional um, state-based approach to classifying uh, emotion, you know, happy, sad, angry, uh, etc.? So there are different intensities to all these emotions. So you might be little angry or very angry. Um, the two-dimensional model can actually uh, engulf all these different intensities. It can give you much more uh, fine-grained, uh, if I may say, level to the emotional state that, that, that you're feeling. It's also a very easy way of... Uh, using it with uh, computer science and, and, and classification um, because you start from um, uh, classifying two levels instead of going into more complex um, um, uh, was it? I lost my word here instead of going into more complex states. Um, so you can start with these two uh, simple dimensions and then you can start breaking them down. And every, as I said, every emotional state can be illustrated within this two-dimensional space. And it has been uh, used a lot in effective uh, computing, physiological uh, computing, and, and obviously in all emotion research lately. So Ify, I, I absolutely love that what the, or the way that you have articulated that and obviously it's a model that that you've probably not come up with but it's certainly a model that you've used in using those two axes to to plot everything that it, it gives me almost like a framework and a language to describe emotional states in a way that i've actually never been able to before in 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 a lot of ways which is which is in itself super interesting but it's it begs the question for me when you've got valence and you've got arousal and that can pretty much cover everything in terms of you know positive negative states like the ones that graham just listed out there what do you measure that goes into valence and what do you measure that goes into arousal how do you classify the two different things on different axes with what you were measuring particularly in this study Yes, yeah, so um, there are specific measures that you can use for each dimension. There's a lot of literature in the background that's supporting that there are specific signals, uh, physiological signals that can be correlated with each one of those uh, dimensions. One of the most famous one is basically the um, facial expression. And uh, as you know, facial expression is in our core of human existence, shaping our everyday communication, our learning experiences, um, how um, we remember different things, our decision-making. Um, and um, obviously when you're happy, we, we can see a big smile on your face and we know <laughs> this is positive valence. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's very self-explanatory, obviously. Sure. And at the same time, we have physiological arousal that is how our body reacts when, um, when we're feeling alert, uh, when we are having a very intense emotion or when we are in a fight-flight uh, situation. Um, and that can be also measured, for example, with a galvanic skin response or let's say how sweaty your hands may get, for example, or heart rate changes because they might increase when you're most um, uh, physiologically aroused. Oh, I see. So we're trying to combine different measures, different uh, physiological modalities together with uh, behavioral traits. So, for example, movement um, or even verbal responses uh, and combining all those different measures, we can have a better understanding of what the emotional state of the user is. Got it. So it's not as simple as saying heart rate relates to valence or, you know, 
specifically in terms of those things, you're actually looking at it in far more of a, of a, of a global picture, I suppose, or holistic picture. I may say that there are specific measures that have been um, correlated with the, with these two dimensions. As I say, for example, the the facial expression, the the muscle activation, um, some EEG uh, research has also been supported, uh, sure. uh, uh, supporting this uh, correlation with valence, and the same thing for heart rate and galvanic skin response with arousal. However, we're still trying to explore whether there are different interactions, sure. uh, whether the uh, heart rate can also be used or different, um, let's say, features of the heart rate can also be used for valence uh, detection. Um, so it's still a very, a, a very complex area, but uh, what we tried to do is detect valence from uh, facial EMG and uh, from verbal uh, responses and movement. So, for example, if you are uh, heading closer to a stimulus, you might feel more positive um, towards that uh, object or whatever that is. And if you go away from it, it might mean that you're trying to withdraw. You 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 are in a in a flight uh, sort of. Uh, getting away from it because you're feeling negative. Uh, and for physiological arousal, the, we used uh, a PPG sensor, which is a photoplethysmography sensor that can detect the um, heart rate pulses on different places on your body. Fantastic. So if you just coming back to the science museum and your collection of data using um, a, a sensor array and virtual reality experiments. Can you just give us some sense of the, the scale and scope of the experiments that you went through in the first place and then just talk a little bit about what it was you were specifically trying to uncover with the primary research purpose of the data collection? Absolutely. Um, so obviously we had a very highly variant background in different ages of uh, participants. I think we had 780 visitors at the museum that volunteered. Um, that means that uh, it's one of the participants uh, participated in uh, the four different scenarios that we had, including a baseline recording uh, that led to about uh, 3,120 recording sessions. And since we used 10 different sensors that make up to 31,200 unimodal data streams, um, which makes this one of the biggest, if not the largest, VR study with um, biometric emotional data. And um, as you know, the bigger the data set, the more robust the result of the classifier is. Um, so this, um, this data set can now form the foundation for all further algorithmic development that we may do, and especially now with MTech. Um, and another very important feature of that data set is that um, is the naturalistic behavior that we actually recorded. It wasn't in a control laboratory uh, condition. It was in the wild in a way because it was within the, the museum and we allowed the participants to naturally interact with the environment. And uh, there are not many data sets that uh, are um, naturally recorded. Interesting. So that and that's a pretty sizable number of people. Um, it's traditionally uh, it's pretty hard to um, collect data using biometrics, uh, at least in in terms of high throughput of people, because of the uh, complexity of setting up sensors and attaching sensors and all the rest of it. Can you can you just talk a little bit about your experimental environment and the tech that you used? Yes, of course. 
So predominantly in the past with uh, electromyography, we would use wet sensors. That's how they call. So basically, you can attach a sensor on, on, on the skin, especially on top of an underlying muscle that you want to measure. And and you need to put these sensors in uh, multiple locations. There, there are many cables involved. Um, you, you don't normally do that uh, on, on a standing uh, participant that's walking around freely. Um, so we used the MTEC headset for this uh, particular study, uh, which uh, includes dry electromyography sensors around the area of the eyes and of the, of the virtual reality headset. And that allows us to also have less obtrusive uh, preparation. Um, it was easier to move with that. It didn't have a lot of cables. Um, it was also wirelessly connected to, to, the, to the PC. Um, and, and it was definitely a non-obtrusive experience for, for the majority of the, of, the, of the participants. At the same time, within that frame mask, we had embedded a PPG sensor to measure the heart rate changes. So everything happened within, uh, within one uh, headset setup, within one frame setup. Um, at the same time, obviously, we had motion sensors that were not actually on the body of the of the participant. They were on cameras surrounding the rooms using the um, room setup of the HTC Vive headset, and that also um, allowed us to have as as less as um, as we can sensors on the body of the of the participant, so that they would have lesser distractions from the environment and feel more freely and get absorbed by. The virtual reality environment and obviously that would increase the levels of presence yes absolutely and uh, and great to hear that the uh, uh, that the kit really did manage to reduce complexity there obviously um, I have more than a little vested interest in this and, uh, and, and <laughs> you know building a system that essentially operates as a lab in a box allowing um, simulation experiments into with integrated biometrics to happen simply and easily anywhere is uh, is absolutely the core of our mission in serving the uh, the research community so uh, that is actually a good point though Graham I mean, what, what was the, what was that like for you obviously seeing seeing your kit used at that sort of scale because as you've said you know using your kit in, in, in a controlled environment with one person is one thing but you know when it's when it's getting the largest biometric emotional data set in the world i mean there must be more than a little anxiety at that point but obviously with the with the results that you've had and all the rest of it it must be quite a must be quite a nice moment to see that you know yeah it was it, it, it was a fantastic learning experience for us and and you know and also great uh, validation of the uh, of the effort that we'd put in to, to get it to that stage mm. so that um Ify, who um, at that time was um, uh, was pursuing her PhD and very much acting as a uh, as an external researcher supported by MTech, um, was able to to complete this work effectively over a uh, over a reasonably short period of time with, with support. I point out, if he wasn't collecting the data purely by herself, we had multiple systems. Uh, we had a we had a you know a reasonably slick process, or she had a reasonably slick process in place. But but nevertheless, a great validation. How, having said that, um, the practical learning experience of that kind of uh, 
um, intensity of use of our technologies over the whatever it was six weeks I think it was is um, has been a huge development um, learning point for us in terms of improving the uh, the durability and the usability of the equipment mm-hmm. uh, working on the integrated mobile system that we've really focused on since then in order to increase the um, the ease of use and the ability to uh, uh, to drive the system anywhere anytime. Um, and also uh, from some of the data that if he's collected the ability for us to improve um, mask fit, sensor performance, et cetera, uh, underlying that. So, yes, uh, you know, from, from, from MTech's perspective as well, the, the data collection process itself was a fantastic experience. And the data set that that has produced um, is now driving the next generation of our valence and arousal uh, algorithms, both both offline, um, calculated in the cloud for um, cohort analysis, and online for real time um, insights that are fed back into the uh, into the three D environment. If the, the Science Museum um, experiment in thirty one thousand two hundred um, uh, data points in the data set, seven hundred and eighty people, etc., it was a fairly big undertaking. What actually were you trying to uh, trying to prove what what was the hypothesis and and, and can you give us some highlights of the uh, the results from study? Yes, so uh, we have two main goals. The first one was to find out if we can um, create a virtual exper- experience that can um, reliably uh, elicit various types of effective uh, combinations of valence and arousal. And the the second point was to it was more like a feasibility to understand if we can detect those affective changes using the physiological and behavioral data uh, through this uh, methodology uh, that I mentioned earlier collected uh, in uh, virtual reality settings. Um, so f- uh, for the first time, obviously, we collected uh, information about how the person felt using questionnaires. Um, for valence and arousal for each one of the environment and all the individual stimuli and events that they experienced. Um, So we found out uh, through analysis that actually uh, those uh, environments and those stimuli indeed uh, induce the affected states that we initially intended to. And the second point was to run a a machine learning, a a classification experiment um, to see if we can actually uh, detect and 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 predict the affective state of the user based from from the physiological data, and uh, from our results, we found that it was ninety three percent the classifier. Uh, sorry, the classifier. Uh, performed really highly with 93% accuracy for binary valence and 88% accuracy for three levels of valence. And then we had 84% accuracy for binary arousal, so low and high, and 78 for three levels of arousal. So overall, very highly, um, very highly performing classifiers. So in, in other words, a classifier is a method that allows you to map um, certain patterns in the data, let's say, with the um, with some labels, and in this case, the labels were the uh, responses of of the participants um, regarding valence and, and arousal. So how they felt. Fantastic! That's really good results. 
yeah, it was uh, it was amazing. We also found um, a bunch of other interesting patterns. We uh, we collect information based on questionnaires on their uh, individual uh, personality traits, alexithymia traits. Um, Alexithymia is the ability of, of, of a participant or an individual to understand their own emotions and, and the emotions of other people. Um, and we also collected information about empathy. Um, and we found out that actually uh, there were certain interactions uh, between um, those traits and the uh, intensity of the emotional uh, expression within those environments. So that was really, really interesting for us. Ify, I don't think I've ever asked you, um, how how did your audience, the public, how did they react to the experiment? Did you get a lot of positivity? Was there a lot of confusion about, you know, what VR what is and what it does and what we were doing? I mean, just generally, what kind of responses did you get from people? <laughs> oh, um, I, I have to say it was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had because of that um, interaction with the general public as well. Most of the users, most of the participants were uh, novice users of VR, so they've never seen or tried VR before. And if they had, it was some sort of mobile version. So they've never tried a fully um, interactive, uh, fully immersive um, virtual reality headset before. And um, obviously, the first time they were very, very excited um, and to, uh, it was very hard for us to almost um, tell them, um, you know, we need to start now. Um, we'll allow you some time to adapt uh, to the virtual reality environment, and then we'll start the recorded uh, the recording. Um, so, uh, because of the different stimuli we had, uh, you would have seen people jumping when they saw um, the, the rat in the room or uh, screaming when they saw a spider. Uh, it was a very intense experience for, for some of them. And that also told us a lot about the, the design that we made. It, it, it was actually working, it was actually inducing those emotional states that we intended to, uh, to induce. We had people that came back to us and, and saying, thank you so much for allowing us to, uh, to experience this new thing. And thank you so much for explaining what uh, research you are, you are doing. And um, obviously, you have, have every type of person as well. There were people who were uh, fans of virtual reality from before, and they have tried it. Um, so it was another, um, another opportunity to have a go with it. Incredible. And I, I'm, I'm really interested to know, therefore, from the, those positive experiences and from, you know, the you've now spent um, several years working and um, driving your passion of, of, uh, of, of building uh, experimental environments and uh, testing within virtual reality. What well, do you see any limitations to the use of VR as a simulated environment for scientific experiment or for indeed for uh, for interventions for training for um, for medical intervention for uh, for skill acquisition exposure therapies uh, etc does it does it have limitations how how far can we go with it to be honest I think virtual reality has shown that it is the perfect uh, technology to stimulate different environments and different conditions to use it for studying human behavior and emotion you can create and experience things that otherwise would be impossible. Uh, you would have to recreate them in the physical environment, but this way, by doing it in the virtual one, it is um, more cost-effective. Um, virtual reality allows you to create um, um, 
certain conditions and experiences without the need of their physical counterpart. You can also have full creative uh, control over the visual and audio stimuli that you use or the level of realism. And this way, you can have a precise uh, control over all of the aspects of the user experience. You can track and measure, uh, you can add sensors, and um, this proves to be at the moment as the ultimate laboratory uh, for a uh, number of sciences and user research um, with applications ranging from entertainment, education, training, therapy, exogames, um, healthcare and well-being, obviously. We have certain limitations at the moment that are related to the person's movement, to the naturalistic be behavior, uh, to the, if I may say, to the obtrusiveness of some of the cables. Um, and that also depends on the virtual reality technology that you're going to be using for your for for your study we have also a very limited field of view but as the the technology goes and advances all these will be um, will be improved all these different aspects of the user experience will be improved and we have also sensors uh, um, that are miniaturized now requires less processing um, we can um, in in the next year we will see a lot more sensors being integrated within wearable uh, solutions and that uh, will allow a lot more researchers to um, combine multimodal uh, solutions and uh, start recording uh, ph physiological data uh, more often into their um, experimental protocols. Yeah, of course, um, <clears throat> miniaturization and increased power in headsets drives more and more capability in an easier to use system as we go forward. And I, I've, I personally really enjoyed seeing that wave of technology over the last Five years, particularly with uh, with XR technologies and the miniaturization of wearable sensors and the acceptance of the public of using uh, data as a way to drive personal power and control over their own behavior and increasingly into medical care as well. What, what's if you what's your view of um, the future of affect science and how it can practically help people? What do you see or hope for in the next five years that might really um, change our worlds in some small or large way that it that that comes out of the affect science work that is happening across the world at the moment. I think the incorporation of virtual reality um, for running experimental studies is one, especially living in the post-COVID era. Um, I think uh, it's paramount now than ever to be able to provide the necessary multimodal solutions for emotional detection, um, especially adapted for VR settings, because that's one of the biggest issues at the moment. The, we don't have a specific um, methodology for physiological uh, read, uh, readout in virtual reality. Um, with the use now of uh, the MTEC headset and uh, the combination of other physiological sensing methods. Um, we can incorporate everything into one setup. Um, for example, before we would have the virtual reality headset on the face of the wearer and therefore we wouldn't actually be able to see what's happening underneath, um, what sort of facial expressions are being stimulated, etc. Now we have the opportunity to do that. And I think this study was almost uh, like a feasibility study to see that we can indeed, indeed uh, record these uh, emotional state changes. And I think that can inform all of the um, subsequent studies uh, in emotion and detection in VR. Um, I think 
we're living in a in a continually advancing mayhem for physiological and affective uh, computing. I mean, 10 years ago, we wouldn't be able to imagine this sudden explosion in the tech industry, and especially in VR. Um, the use of portable, cost-effective VR in, in research and uh, entertainment, training, and healthcare um, has um, rapidly increased since, I think, 2012, and obviously since 2016 especially, um, we can only expect more and more research to be contacted uh, using virtual laboratory instead, um, rather than the physical. Um, and um, some of them will probably be happening remotely uh, due to the COVID. Um, I believe emotion research will greatly be benefited by um, these new methods and um, this new way of e experimenting and uh, allowing the, the creation of different scenarios and conditions and exp experiences uh, through the virtual lens. What do you see, the, what is the import? What is the value of emotions research? As an affect scientist, how can the work that you do ultimately contribute to benefits to human welfare and society? There are many applications where we can um, we can use the emotion detection or affect the detection. Um, for example, I don't know if you've heard of obviously you've heard of the effective uh, computing uh, field. Uh, it is a field that is um, focused on the um, understanding, interpretation, and processing of emotional states, so that we can teach the machine uh, to uh, and to understand and interpret the emotional state of the user, we could make um, applications and uh, devices a lot more adaptive to, to the user. So for example, um, there's so many uh, interactions with your, uh, with your PC that at some point it might be uh, confusing or not useful, but if the, if the device knew what, how you felt and that uh, for example, a training uh, session was very confusing. Uh, they, it could adapt to your needs and address all these different um, uh, human needs we have when we are interacting with the computer. So in a way, it could allow uh, computers to um, adapt to our own feelings. It could also allow us to... Um, uh, Communicate our uh, our emotions with uh, uh, virtual avatars uh, in the virtual space. We could uh, use emotion to express um, uh, nonverbal uh, communication or verbal even uh, communication. We can translate all these different signals that we get uh, from a user to um, to allow. Um, the, um, to allow for uh, a different type of communication with other uh, people on the globe. Um, I completely agree. I mean, the ability for a computer to have an understanding of our nonverbal communication and how that relates to our emotional state has obvious value in developing our digital assistants so they give us what we actually want rather than what we even say that we want on occasion. I think for me, possibly, the deepest and most meaningful use of emotions research is in seeing our emotions, our, our state of emotion, our mood as a medical marker of our, of, of our welfare. 
Um, you know, because emotions fundamentally drive our behaviors, the choices that we make, and therefore ultimately the health outcomes that we have, by understanding and being able to guide us based on our emotions, we have an opportunity to better decode um, how to positively act upon them and also how to affect those emotions positively when they're when they're not right, whether that be in interventions to do with mental health therapies or um, or, or helping people perform better in stressful situations. I think the the soft skills um, interactions that are available there could, are potentially life-changing to a huge number of people. Absolutely. And as I said, there's so many different applications where we could use this knowledge. We could even um, allow people to um, train with uh, social avatars in the case of, uh, for example, with autism. Uh, we can give feedback to users about whether uh, we saw an increase of, of heart rate or stress levels. Um, we could make a training application easier for someone who found it difficult. Um, I think this uh, new way of understanding what the person is feeling and being able to adapt around them and give them useful feedback, um, I think is really, really important. I think for me, you know, listening in on this as well, like it's, it's, um, it's almost as if what you're saying is that in so many of these different spheres, in so many of these different applications, it's about the almost the speed of course correction you know when you talk about it in in mental health or even you talk about it in education or even gaming and all these different things it's it's a computer you know learning about you and then executing immediately to change it to make it better for you and it seems that that is almost the the unifying bit here that the, the course correction no matter what the field is so rapid it's it's live it's real time that it's going to lead to almost like an exponential increase in how good things can be for people and I, I like what you said Graham about the fact that it does everything you said there kept coming back to people and it kept coming back to how it it works for us as as human beings as a population and how it benefits our health and well-being you said and I think that that is a really important thing to say here that that's what you guys are focused on. And, and you know, from, from me, from an outside perspective, that's really nice. Yeah, I mean, uh, my, my firm belief is, uh, and, you know, hardly a radical belief in the, uh, in the forward view of, of healthcare is that a personalized model is the only way to move forward. In, uh, mm -hmm. un emotions research gives us another layer of data to understand the individual and the individual's responses. <clears throat> so whilst it's still maybe possible in the future to break people down, you know, stratify them into, um, into, into types, phenotypes, even uh, based on their broad emotional reactions, we have to see, uh, people and their behaviors as an individual model. We have to learn that individual's behavior patterns and provide interventions to them that, that help them make the choices that are right for them. Emotions research gives us a, a really important way to, uh, uh, to provide that level of, uh, of, of personalization. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, as you say, personalized medicine is just the future full stop. There's no, there's no disagreement from, from any side of the table there. And I think anything that helps us get there, um, quicker and, and safely for people understanding them more is just so important. And, and, and that's why, you know, I can appreciate 
the the value of of emotion because of it is how we actually feel it is how we actually are and and as you say when you've got a digital assistant that can actually give you what you actually want rather than even what you say you want sometimes then we're on on the way to uh, to a better world particularly when you apply that to you know a therapist or something like that that can give you what you actually want rather than what you're saying and um, obviously there are, there are lots of devastating things that can happen as a result of, of poor mental health when people are saying one thing and, and thinking and feeling and meaning another, you know. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's optimism for the future. Absolutely. Well, that was fantastic. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Ify, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I, I feel that we could actually just keep on talking away on the subject for another couple of hours. But uh, for the interests of the uh, of the podcast and keeping this to time, we should probably stop. Uh, so <laughs> thank you very much for joining us. Um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks very much for listening and uh, goodbye. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Emotion Lab. If you've enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow us across social media to keep up with the latest in Emotion AI. Thanks.